Well, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Song of Songs chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these on the floor around you somewhere. It's page 469 in this Bible. And we've been on the same page for four weeks now because we're in week four of our five-week series called Relationship Goals. And uh, we've been reading through the Old Testament book of Song of Songs together. If you grew up in church, maybe you came from a more traditional background, you may know it as Song of Solomon. We're talking about the same book there. But what we've been doing is uh, Song of Songs, is, by the way, it's in the middle of your Bible. It's in a section called the Wisdom Books. And we believe it spells out God's design for love relationships. And so we've been going chapter by chapter. And what we've been doing is getting to know this man and this woman who are the main characters in Song of Songs. And uh, week one, we talked about attraction and what we should look for in a mate and what we should look to be uh, in for, as a mate for someone else. And then week two was about dating and how we honor God in that process. And then uh, week three, last week, we went to the wedding of this man and woman. We talked about marriage and what it means to make a commitment uh, when you get married. And if you missed any of those, you should take some time to listen to the podcast this week on the Genesis Church app or on iTunes. Uh, just search Genesis Church Carmel and you'll find it. Uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at chapter four, which is all about sexual intimacy in marriage. And I'm going to need your help because um, this is a serious topic, but we want, don't want to take ourselves too seriously in there. And so if you guys, uh, if you guys don't laugh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be awkward for me, and it's going to be more awkward for you because you're going to have to watch this whole thing fall apart, all right? And so hopefully uh, we'll, find, we'll be encouraged by the text, but we'll find uh, some humor in it too. Now, my guess is that in this room, we're talking to a few different groups of people. There are those of you who aren't married and aren't having sex, uh, and uh, I think it's important for you to hear this for a couple reasons. One is that you may have grown up with this idea that like, sex is bad. You know, and I, I, we use this uh, week one, but a lot of times churches will say sex is dirty, sex is gross, save it for your husband, right? Well, we don't want to teach that. That's not the way it is. For some of you, you are influenced by the world's distorted view on sex, by what you watch and the, the shows you watch, the music you listen to, the books you read, uh, the people you're around. And the messages on sex are, are everywhere. And too often, the God that created this beautiful gift is drowned out. Uh, second group, there's those of you who aren't living right now in accordance with God's plan for sexual intimacy. Whether you're married or not, you're having sex with somebody who, to whom you're not married. And we've got something for you today, too. Three, three, there is a group in here who are married and you have a good, healthy sex life. And for you, I hope you feel affirmed today. And, uh, but maybe even you can find something to help improve that. And then uh, fourth, there are people here who are married and your love life isn't good, and it's bringing your marriage down, and maybe it's destroying your marriage. Sex is a powerful thing. It, sexual intimacy is not a healthy part of your marriage. It can affect every part of the relationship, and there's all kinds of problems that arise in marriages around sex. Uh, that it's a frequency problem. One says it's not enough. The other one thinks it's too much. Uh, there's an expectation problem, what we learned, what we heard about, what we thought it was going to be, uh, we're not living up to that. Maybe it's a season of life issue. It's your kids, your job, your just busyness in general, or your health. Or it could be a confidence problem that she never seems to respond or she never initiates or maybe he doesn't make you feel beautiful or safe. I want you to know that God wants you to have a great sex life and a lot of it. And that's what we're going to take away from today. When you're married... Right? He knows that the best sex is found in an intimate, committed marriage relationship. And I hope in our work together this morning, and it is going to be some work, 
because we're going to have to draw out of Scripture what God wants us to hear. But I hope our work this morning will give us some insights into this. So chapter 3 ends uh, with the wedding of this couple. That's what we talked about last week. And in chapter 4, we follow them into the honeymoon suite, and we get an inside look at how the wedding night progresses. But I want to be honest first and just say this is, it's a little awkward, right, to follow somebody into the honeymoon And for some people in this room, this may seem like scandalous to get this up close and personal at someone else's sex life. But for I know for others others of us, we've been so accustomed and desensitized to sexuality that we don't even pay attention to it. Like we we miss what it's saying because what we watch on TV, what we read, what we see in the movies, it's really ridiculous how I think if somebody came into your living room and started getting undressed and started touching each other, you would think that was really awkward and inappropriate. But if it's on a TV screen... We don't think anything of it. It's fine. It's okay, right? Well, this is going to get really, we're going to get really up close at this couple as we find out uh, this open invitation to sexual intimacy the way that God created it to be. So Song of Songs chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to go through this verse by verse. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. So this man starts out with words that give uh, his wife now confidence and security. If there's any chance she's feeling self-conscious, and we know she is, if you remember week one, she's a little self-conscious about the way she looks, about how her body looks. Uh, His words quickly put her at ease as he stands there and says, you're beautiful. You know, most women are at least a little insecure about the way they look, and that's how he starts. He says he takes time to compliment her. And he's good. I mean, he's really smooth. We'll see as we go through this, uh, through this chapter. He lifts her veil, and then he says this, your eyes behind your veil are doves. And so he starts with her eyes, which gives us a little indication of where he's looking. Uh, in fact, I told you, I think, the first week that I wanted to call this message, my eyes are up here, right? Because this is how he starts. He starts with her eyes. Uh, maybe, guys, your wife has accused you of looking at her like a piece of meat, Well, notice for a moment, that's not what he's treating her like. He looks into her eyes, and then he says this, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. I'm not sure what happened here. (laughs) I I think maybe he started with, your hair is like, and then he just like really, you know, racked the back of his brain and couldn't come up with anything, and he's like, the goats, the goats descending from Mount Gilead. But no, this is actually very romantic. I mean, you have to think about this in this culture that a woman for her wedding would have worn a Jewish bridal cap and her hair would have all been tied up. So what is he doing? Well, he's taking her cap off and her hair is flowing down her shoulders. Now, he's not just ripping her clothes off. He's gently undoing her hair. And then in verse two, he starts to speak about her teeth. Now, why would he be talking about her teeth? Because he can see her teeth, which means she's probably what? Smiling. She's probably smiling. They're probably having a good time together. Right? So he says this, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has his twin. Not one of them is alone. This is a good time to remind the guys, I think. Guys, we want to take a cue from Solomon, but maybe not use his words. Okay? Your teeth are like sheep, honey. Um, it it kind of loses something in the translation, right? But, but what he's saying is her teeth are clean, right? They're white. That's good. Her teeth are clean and white. And then he says, each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Guys, this may not be a good pickup line to use in Indiana. <laughs> All her teeth are straight and in place. You know, may not work as well here. But, but he's not just focused on what we typically think about, a guy being focused on 
uh, during this act. He's, he's not focused on the sexual parts of her body. He compliments her eyes, her hair, her teeth, and then he says, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. So he's not even below the neck yet. He's taking his time. He's being tender and gentle. And guys, we're not always tender or gentle. We're not patient or thoughtful. Sometimes we just want to, you know, get in there and go for it. But he takes this time to make her feel secure and beautiful. Solomon is in no hurry. He's enjoying the process. And maybe that's a lesson for all of us. He's enjoying the process. He he understands that there's a spiritual bond going on here, that sex is not just physical. This is what uh, Pastor Matt Chandler calls a mingling of souls. It's this spiritual bond that happens with sex. And so he gently caresses her and kisses her as he tells her how beautiful she is. His full attention is on her. And then it gets saucy as we go to verse 5. He takes off her dress and he looks at her body and he says, Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Her breasts are like two fawns. How many hunters in the room? How many hunters do we have? Raise your hand if you're a hunter. Couple. I'm not a hunter, but I know what to do when you see fawns and what not to do when you see fawns. And what you don't do if you see fawns in the wild is go, hey guys, look, there's fawns. It's fawns, guys. There's real life fawns over there. And then go tackle them, right? (laughs) I think I'm right. What do you do? That's a good question, Cameron. How does it apply to what we're talking about? I want you to think about how Solomon's teaching us how to approach a woman's body. He says it's gentle. You got to be, you got to, you got to, you got to sneak up on fawns, right? You got to be quiet. You got to be careful. (laughs) Guys, some of you have had your mind destroyed by pornography. And you've got this ridiculous idea about what your wife wants and what she's going to be like in bed. And you've been poisoned by this stuff. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be adventurous. You shouldn't try new things, okay? But what I'm saying is that intimacy is so much more than just technique, right? That there's so much more to it. And, and guys, pornography gives us this idea that this is how you're supposed to treat a woman. And Solomon is saying, no, no, we're going to back up here. He says, this is, this is the intention. We're going to be gentle. We're going to be tender. We're going to be quiet. We're going to approach her body carefully. Now, as harmful as pornography is for men, I believe romance novels and shows like The Bachelor can be just as harmful for women. Oh, wait. Oh, he's ripping on The Bachelor now? I'm out. Now, I'm not saying watching The Bachelor is sinful, but what I'm saying is it can set an unrealistic expectation for women as to what they can expect from romance and intimacy, and it can leave them longing for something that their husband can't possibly deliver, which is the same thing that pornography does for men in a much different way. So Solomon goes on, verse 6, he says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. Solomon basically says, I'm going to be with you all night. You know, the, the good thing about The marriage relationship is when you're dating, if you've honored your boundaries and you've done things right, every night you have to say goodnight to somebody and watch them go home or you have to go home. 
And then when you go to bed, when your head hits the pillow at night, they're the last thing you think about. And when you wake up in the morning, they're the first thing you think about. But when you get married, you lose that. You, you get to see, you get to wake up next to somebody. And what a gift that is. And Solomon's recognizing, hey, we're going to get to be together all night long. It's fun to wake up next to each other. And one thing that you need to understand about this verse is that the Persians believed that their gods, the Persian gods, breathed frankincense and myrrh. And so they would uh, give those as gifts. They offered them as gifts to their gods. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone, if you know your Bible at all? You know, this man says her body is like frankincense and myrrh. One Jewish scholar said that the man's basically telling this woman that he wants to bury his face in her body that he can't get close enough. And then in verse 7, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. So he's looking at his naked wife. She's completely vulnerable. And he says, you're perfect. There's no flaw in you. He understands that part of being a good lover and a good husband is to make his wife feel safe and comfortable. In fact, what you'll notice as we study through this, he is intentional to compliment the areas of her body that most women are very sensitive about. They seem to be self-conscious about. So he says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's den and the mountain haunts of the leopard. So these uh, three words in here, um, Amana, Sinir, and Hermon were mountains uh, in the north of Israel and in Lebanon, and they were mountains where the lions would live. And, and so when you were descending the mountain, you had to be very cautious. My, our family took a trip to South Dakota a few years ago, and we talked to a, a park ranger who told us that cats, jungle cats, they have uh, mountain lions in South Dakota, and they said they always attack from above, like they want to jump down on their prey. So it was when you were descending the mountain that you had to worry you had to be careful because the lions on Mount Sinir, on Mount Hermon, would come down after them. And so what Solomon's doing is he's reminding his wife that this is a safe place, that you don't have to be careful or cautious here. He assures her that he's going to be gentle. And so I want you to notice what's happening here. We just pause right here in a minute. We read through these eight verses. What's happening is very applicable to what we talked about last week because Solomon, in this case, he is leading his wife, but he's submitting to her at the same time. He's saying, your needs are more important than my needs. So he says, verse 9, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. I want you to notice the emphasis on the senses here, that sex is very sensual. Verse 11, he says, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. How does he know that milk and honey are under her tongue? He's kissing her. This is a deep kiss. This is a serious kiss. This is no... Alan Tipper Gore at the Democratic National Convention kiss. This is a like serious, romantic, deep kiss. And it leads him to say this in verse 12. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. And so what we learn about her is that on her wedding night, this woman was a virgin. 
that all through their dating and engagement, and to this point, he's guarded and honored her purity, but now he's getting ready to unseal the fountain. Now, this is important because in this culture, especially the woman's purity uh, at marriage was so highly valued. It was so important that what would happen is on their wedding night, a man would place a cloth under his wife so that when they had sex for the first time, it would capture the blood that was produced. And so that way, if anybody ever accused her of sleeping around before they got married, he would keep that cloth and he would have proof as evidence to the contrary. And then he goes on. He says, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard. He's saying, you're the sweetest thing I've ever experienced. There's no sweeter taste than the taste of my wife. Again, it's very sensual. You know, Solomon is kissing her from head to toe. He's complimenting her every step of the way. Every inch of her he admires. Verse 14, he says, Nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. This woman is awakened to this man. We're, ha- we're almost done with the chapter, and so far it's just been him talking. We haven't heard from her yet. It's all foreplay so far. But she's been quiet, but in verse 16, she looks at this man and she says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. A couple observations from this verse. Um, In the Middle East, the north wind is strong and powerful. The south wind is gentle. This woman wants to be loved with strength and gentleness. He says, she says, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And if you're thinking, does that mean what I think it means? I know there's a lot of imagery in this uh, story. Does that mean what I think it means? Yep, it means what you think it means. And so as you're reading this, this is where you go, is this really the Bible? Like that's, that's in there? Hmm, how come nobody ever told me to read this before? You know, it's good stuff. Um, it's uh, that moment where you think, oh, This is inspired by God, everybody. This is so good. You know, she's responding to him and she's ready to move from foreplay to play. Now notice she says, let my lover come into his garden. Notice she calls it his garden. She's giving herself to him. This is an essential part of intimacy. It's giving yourself to the other person. She's responsive to him. And ladies, even though men are visual creatures, we crave that verbal response, that affirmation, uh, that, that... you know, you may not think of it with a man, but man is very vulnerable during sex as well. While women are often uh, concerned about how they look and their appearance, for men, it's very difficult even to make that ask, like to talk about sex with his wife, because whether a man admits it or not, his ego and his uh, pride is very tied up in what she's going to say and how she's going to respond. Now, what happens next uh, after verse four doesn't really get described. It's kind of like somebody hit the fast forward button. So this is more of a PG-13 story than a rated R story. You know, in a rated R movie, they would show the whole act in a PG-13. They kind of show it up till it's about to happen. And then they show the couple like cuddling under the covers later. This is what we get. So in verse five, what we read in verse five, chapter, or chapter five, verse one is uh, past tense. We see this. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine. And my milk. And I think as we read this verse, the one word that just comes to mind over and over again is the word satisfied. That Solomon is satisfied. There's a deep satisfaction that he's found in doing things the right way, doing things God's way. 
Now, notice in this verse, he uses the word my like nine times. I've gathered my myrrh and my spice. I've come into my garden. I've tasted my honeycomb. Like there's something about this act that has brought them together, as the scripture says, that they've become one flesh. And as the two of them lay in bed together, they experience this oneness and this intimacy. And we see him say, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. And so if you want to know how God really feels about sex inside the covenant of marriage, there it is. I think that one line, that can be your life verse right there. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. It's like God's, like, God's up there like, oh, yeah, this was my idea. Like Jesus and the Holy Spirit high-fiving each other after this happens, right? It's like that's God's plan. This beautiful poetic passage, it makes us blush a little bit. It's making me sweat. I don't know about you guys. I know it's hot out there, but it's really hot up here. Um, when we read it in church, or maybe some things get lost in the translation, but this passage about a couple's wedding and honeymoon gives us a few insights into sexual love as God intended it to be between a husband and a wife. And so if you're married, uh, what we're going to talk about next, this is what's in your message notes, by the way. And so we wanted to unpack that verse and then look at what it can teach us, uh, the truth about sexual intimacy. And so if you're married, this hopefully will help realign uh, your intimacy with your spouse. If you're not married, this matters because our culture just overwhelms us with these messages about sex and how it doesn't mean much and how it's all physical. But we all need to know how to process it from God's perspective. And so here, here's what Song of Songs has to teach us about God's intent, intention for sex. Uh, these are in your notes. By the way, it says on your message notes, if you picked one up, that Paul Mumaw is preaching today. He's not preaching here. But if you have any uh, angry emails to send about this message, you can send them to him because his name's on the card. So uh, that'll work for me. Uh, number one is this, four things that can teach us about sex. Sex is a, uh, <laughs> that's not, that's not what you're supposed to put in the blank, Cameron. Sex is amazing. No, sex is a gift. <laughs> that didn't happen in the first service. You see what you get for coming to second, guys? Sex is a gift. God created sex. He created every body part, uh, every emotion. He created every hormone in our body. He mixed them all together. It's God's idea and God's intent for sex is for it to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. He created it. It's a gift from him. And because it's a gift from God, we can know, number two, that sex is good. Sex is good. Within the context of a committed marriage relationship, God wants this to happen. All right, Proverbs 5.18 says, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Now, that phrase, intoxicated with her love, is a strong word. It means to be captivated by, to be ravished, to be enthralled. One translation says, Let her steal away your senses. That God's idea for sex in marriage is that it be fulfilling and fantastic. And it's not simply a suggestion. This is God's command. He says, rejoice in your wife. Uh, let her tender embrace satisfy you. Let her alone fill you with delight. That's how one translation reads. He's saying, I command you to have fun. Uh, so sex is a gift. Sex is good. Number three is this. Sex is selfless. Sex is selfless. We see Solomon taking the time to romance his wife. We see the woman giving her over her body to her husband. And see, this is a problem with like pornography and romantic comedies with our hookup culture today. It's so focused on my satisfaction and what I need to get out of sexual intimacy. 
But in Philippians, Paul says that we should not look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others as well, to consider others' interests more important than our own. And I think that that piece of advice, that piece of scripture translates really well uh, into the bedroom. Because even in marriage, self-centeredness can be a problem. Like when the husband uh, demands sex right after an argument or while the kids are uh, playing in the next room or when she's had a hard day or it's the wife who won't even allow her husband to touch her for weeks on end and then when she does, it's like it's some kind of chore. It's what uh, therapists call sexual sabotage. If you want to develop intimacy, you will pour yourself into understanding your partner's needs and meeting them in sensitive, loving ways. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Now, I know that some guy is going to go home tonight and say, reporting for duty. You can use that if you want. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have any authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. We don't have authority over our own bodies. Guys, don't don't view sex as a reward for doing something else. The husband in this story loves his wife, not to get something out of her, but because he loves her. And, And that's true for wives as well. Sex is not a way to manipulate, to get your way later, to take advantage of him. It's not a bargaining tool. You don't you don't love him just to get something out of it, but to love him. Selflessness means that we are not seeking a reward but we're doing something with pure motives. Ladies, this is not always true, but in most cases, your husband needs sex more than you do. And you are the only legitimate option he has to meet those needs. So you can choose to ignore the fact that God created your husband different from you, or you can be selfless about meeting those needs. Sex is selfless. In the same way, guys... Women need the romance and the spiritual intimacy part far more than we do in most cases. And you can ignore that and pretend that God didn't create her different than you, or you can be selfless about trying to meet her needs as well. Sex is selfless. And finally, number four is this, sex is holy. Sex is holy. Now, what does holy mean? Holy simply means to be set apart, Uh, to be different, to be pure in a way that other things are not pure. Remember what he tells her in uh, verse 12. He says, you are a garden. You are a garden locked up, my sister, a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. He's saying, you're pure. You're holy. You're set apart. I, I know we've talked about this for a few weeks now, and I know in 2016 it sounds a little old fashioned. But you can't read the whole of scripture without seeing clearly God's design is for sex inside marriage. I mean, 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible says that single people, if they can't control themselves, should get married because it's better to marry than to burn. Paul says, those are your choices. You marry or you burn with passion. Those are the two choices we have. And for those of you right now seeking sexual intimacy with somebody other than your husband or your wife, Proverbs 15 says, drink from your own cistern. Drink water from your own well. Don't share it with strangers. Why? Why does the Bible care so much about my personal, private, intimate sex life? 
because sex is holy. It's holy. It's supposed to be set apart. When you get married to someone, you don't enter into a contract. We as Christians enter into a covenant before God. Now, what's a covenant? A covenant is a binding spiritual agreement. And that's why in a covenant we say, till death do us part, not until I'm not happy again or until you're not meeting my needs, but till death do us part. And any time a covenant was established by God and between God and God's people, there was a shedding of blood. This happened in the Old Testament uh, when they would uh, kill the bull and they cut the bull in half and they walk through the middle of it seven times. There was blood involved with that. You better believe there was a lot of blood that happened. Uh, anytime that there was sin in the Old Testament, you're in a covenant with God that you had to kill an animal to make up for that. That blood had to be shed. Now, we live, fortunately, thank God, in the new covenant, where we're not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant. And what did Jesus do to establish the new covenant? He was without sin, and he shed his own blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. He died, and he rose again. And if you take the Lord's Supper with us or communion with us like we did last week, you know that you take that bread that represents his body and you eat it and you take that uh, drink that represents his blood and you drink it. And when you do that, that you are remembering uh, the fact that Christ died on the cross, that he spilled his blood so that we could be in a new covenant. Now by grace, through faith, our sins are forgiven and we're made whole. Sex is not just physical, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. It's a covenant, which is why it hurts so much when a sexual relationship is broken. It's why the pain of sexual abuse far exceeds the, the pain and the duration of physical abuse. And if you're one who's been sinned against sexually, I just want you to hear clearly that it's not your fault and that you're not damaged goods for it. Sex hurts. Sexual sin hurts. It's painful. I think that's why more families are torn apart by sexual sin than by other types of sin. And honestly, I think it's why we in the church tend to treat sexual sin different than other sins. Like it's worse, right? Like it's, like it's unforgivable. But it's not. It's not unforgivable. And in a room this size, knowing how many of us have messed up in this area, I think we need to take a moment and recognize that Jesus died to set us free from the chains of sin and bondage. That, that even if you've sinned sexually, even if you've done it after becoming a Christian, that you can be forgiven of it. In John chapter 8, we see this remarkable story of Jesus confronted with someone's sin. John 8, 3 says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Would you just close your eyes and bow your heads right now? I, I want to pray for everyone in the room who's caught in sexual sin right now. Maybe it doesn't have to be sexual sin. It can be any kind of sin. Maybe it's, there's some pattern or habit in your life that you're not proud of.
I want you to imagine that like this woman, you are dragged out into a crowd with your worst sin on display. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want you to imagine that this is you in this circle of people. Would you see Jesus squatting down and riding in the dirt? I want you to hear the passion in his voice as he confronts your accuser, your adversary. Feel the air moving as one by one, the men, the accusers, they walk away. And now you're standing there alone with Jesus. I want you to hear him as he says to you, go now and leave your life of sin. Later in John 8, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now as a slave has no, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Maybe you just needed to hear that this morning, that you can be set free from the bonds of sin through the sacrifice Jesus made for you on the cross. Father, we thank you so much that you shed your son's blood for us. We thank you that you did that to provide an eternal life for us, eternity with you, but also that you did it so that we could be free from our sin here on the earth, God. I'm so thankful to hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. And Lord, as we leave this place today, we'll be confronted with real life and real work and real problems. And I pray that just as we go through our life, as we go through the rest of our weekend and even into next week, Lord, that we can hear your voice gently say, I don't condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. God, we thank you so much for the love that you showed on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name.